It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling Gulf Coast is the inspirational voice of Gulf Coast fishing and conservation. Hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist, conservationist, and flounder revolutionary, Chester Moore. Be ready for a relentless pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fishing adventure. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. This is Chester Moore, and I'm excited to have a good friend of mine back, the president of CCA, but also an author, former fishing guide, and an author of a relatively new book, It's More Than Fishing, The Art of Texas Trout and Redfish Angling, Pat Murray. How you doing, Pat? Oh, doing great. Glad, glad, glad to be on the show with you. Always enjoy this. That's going to be fun stuff. Well, I reached out, you know, because it's getting the time of year. Unfortunately, the wind has been whacking us hard, but um, we're surf fishing is a real force among the anglers wanting to go catch nice speckled trout. It's that time of year. We're on the right day. The surf lays a little bit. You get that sandy green water on the upper coast, the clearer water down on the lower coast, and those big trout start slurping up topwaters in the surf. Yeah, that is an exciting time. I'm very fired up about it. I, after after that grueling winter, um, just going ahead and crawling in the surf sounds really good right now. Yeah, my goal this year, I'm only going to surf fish for trout with a fly rod this year. Uh, I'm forcing myself to do this. Uh, I don't expect to catch a lot, but with that big popper that I have, I expect I can probably catch quite a few. Well, that's funny. So I... I like many follow you on Instagram, yeah. and um, and I've and have seen that you have been working on your fly skills. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> because you are you are absolutely terrorizing the bass and brim. Well, and, here's uh, the thing: <laughs> this may be a little briefer conversation than normal because it's, there's a private pond I fish. Uh, two nice ones uh, about a mile from my house and five minutes before I got on the phone with you I released about a three pounder I caught on my popper the bite is on so after this I'm going straight <laughs> back to the water <laughs> the shortest podcast ever recorded <laughs> yeah, no, I will I, I promise listeners I will not skimp uh, any kind of quality for a fishing operation but you can be guaranteed soon as I say bye to Pat we're gonna edit this sucker later I'm hitting the water so uh that that's yeah I like take people taking people on a journey like that you know and showing what's really going on and holding the skills but you know surf fishing was probably my first introduction to catching like nice trout uh, in the in the late mid eighties. Um, you know the trout numbers weren't what they are now. There was problems back then because they just came off netting them, and the bay fishing here was okay. But there were still some decent trout in the surf. So I remember standing in the surf at High Island with my dad with a silver spoon and catching some nice trout. So uh, tell me about kind of your early surf fishing for trout uh, operations. You know, it's funny. So my, I think, attachment to the surf in general, and it was all hinged around we were at least targeting trout often. Yeah. Um, didn't always catch as many as we wanted. Sure. But um, m- many of them were focused around camping trips I'd do with some buddies where we'd go camp down at Finlow's Pass. And, and the interesting thing is we'd always come back bruised and dehydrated and sandy and um but also just blown away by the ominous power of the surf sure. and and the lure of these 
super purple back trout that were there. Plus, honestly, some of the collaterals that you never know if you saw a spinner shark or a, yeah. you know, or a mackerel taking air. And so the magic of the surf has always had me. And then, goodness, through growing up fishing and then into fish guiding, um, I mean, there was no better place as a fishing guide um, when you could get your customers. I usually tended to fish the Bolivar surf from a boat, yeah. um, you know, everything from Bolivar pocket down. And because when the bite is on, um, it is so good and so indiscriminate and so exciting. It's probably one of the most exciting trout bites I think you can encounter. There's no doubt about that. I remember probably the best one I got on early in my life. I think I was in 10th grade and my family rented a beach cabin down in Bolivar. And uh, I met a really pretty girl. Uh, that was about two cabins <laughs> down. And the, the only thing that got my attention more than fish back then were ladies. And, uh, but even like wanting to hang out with her, I made her like go out in the surf with me with a rod and fish. Cause the bite was on. I'm like, come on, you can come fish, you know? And like, so I handed this chick a rod and you do that, but I got to catch the trout because you're right. And I remember that particular trip, you talked about it being on a lot of schooling trout, some nice fish, but I was actually watching tarpon work about three or four hundred yards out in the surf one morning there so magical moment magical times and um but that's really where i kind of want to start the main part of our conversation here is you know you're sitting there we're all busy we all have these various electronic apparatus to tell us things what do you what's that first signal pat that you look for and go i need to go to the surf you know, okay, that's a great question. It's a great starting point because um, to some degree it's water temp. Yeah. Um, I think there's more flexibility in water temp. You know, we, there's always been this sort of magic number of 70-degree water temp. Uh, I think there's a lot of leeway on either side on that um, because I think it has a lot more to do with what's going on in the patterning on bait on a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say this right now, um, we're, when it lays, we're in prime time. Yeah. I like earlier summer better mm-hmm. than late. Me too. Um, schools seem tighter. They seem bigger. Um, you know, the water's a little crisper. So I think sometimes that, that lends itself to the bite. Um, and I will say too, there's nothing more magical than the first few trout you catch of the year in the surf, because generally, um, not a disparagement of bay trout, but, um, but you know, you've been catching trout in the bay, let's say, and you know, you're catching a two pound trout and it's a really great fish to catch. Sure. You go out in the surf and catch a two pound trout. You think you have a five on, For I sure. mean, it, they are on fire. And so this is probably the advent of it. I think as you had almost opened with, and, and so I'm looking at that. And then the beauty that happens now that did not happen when you and I were talking about our early years is um, getting a good water report. Now, yeah. we used to rely on, you know, you call the beachfront piers. Yep. And uh, let's just be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know. Sure, you know, it's great. Guys, Come on down here and fish. <laughs> exactly. They're catching lots of trout and mackerel. It's awesome. Come down. It probably wasn't the best source. No. Um, and honestly, too, on both sides, because there's, I, I can tell you this, and I know you have these stories, too. There are days that the wind wasn't optimal that, but coming off of an optimal period that I could go look at a surf cam and see that, you know what, it's still fishable. Sure. 
and go get a good surf session in, even though the weather report might not lend itself to me believing that I could have gotten the water. So again, the advent of the surf cam changed everything, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing and a wonderful tool. And uh, looking at those optimal conditions, because sometimes some of us have to run a pretty good clip to get to the beach. You know, to me, it's basically an hour, 45 mm-hmm. minutes. So if I'm going to take mm-hmm. that two hours just for travel to and fro, I want to make sure I can maximize what I got going on. But I'm like you, you know, anytime above 70 degrees, within a couple of degrees, and, um, you know, where it's not milk chocolate water and it's not the perfect storm, there might be some trout out there, you know. Um, but something else this mm-hmm. time of year that I think that people really need to start keying on is, you know, what kind of bait fish you're looking for. So what is your preferred bait fish source? If like if you are you into shad, you're into mullet. I mean, what, what are you really looking for out there? You know, probably, that's a hard one, because probably all of the above, yeah. um, in the sense that, to me, you know, bait is king, yeah. undoubtedly, in the mm-hmm. surf. Mm-hmm. Um, you have got to see bait. And and so, you know, we're at the time where you can see, you know, a little early, but you'll start seeing some shrimp, because you'll start seeing birds working out, particularly out farther. Um, definitely see mullet. And, you know, those shad hatches, as they come out, um, you'll see, you know, small groups of shad, plus there's you know, there's big pogies um, that usually are a little farther out, but out there. And so to me, it's just that presence of bait. And, and, you know, we talk about bait in all fishing. We talk about it in the bay. Um, I will tell you, I think in the surf is the spot you have to pay the most attention Mm -hmm. to where it is because of the nuance of bars and guts in that, I have made the mistake. I actually wrote it in that, and it's more than fishing. I, 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 gave my own confession of one time it was on East Beach that I had, I piled out, um, great water right where I wanted to be. Um, there was bait idly jumping in super shallow water, which I hate. It was really calm. That water was, I mean, bath water hot. Yep. And I, I piled out the second bar and just go to work fishing dead water. And it was funny. It was after some little period. I finally kept looking back and seeing some shad flashing and seeing mullet jumping and I tie on a jig, and it was wide open with everything you wanted. I mean, every species was up in that shallow water. Yeah. don't know why, huh. um, but that's where the bait was. Yep. And it reminded me to quit fishing where I want the fish to be and oh, start yeah. fishing with where they actually are. Yeah. You know? And that makes sense because I think that uh, if I look back at all of my surf fishing trips that I can remember – if there wasn't a tangible bait presence, especially nervous bait presence, it was almost always a no-go. It was almost always yeah. a, a less than stellar trip. And uh, that's interesting you say that about being too shallow because I've kind of noticed that too shallow uh, can be challenging. I've actually caught fish a couple of times literally standing on the beach <laughs> and throwing, yeah. Yeah, no. th- throwing into the surf right there as the breakers and catching fish. No, it's quite, and again, I think the the important point embedded in that in both of our stories is that don't don't try to impose something on that body of water because mm-hmm. that body of water really does function uniquely, and um, and I even think that's true. I I think you've done a good job in this in this session already mentioning sandy green. You know that yeah. the old proverbial trout green has been way over mysticized, and um, and I. I I, I love to think in examples in fishing is I, and the times that I've made the run down to the bay, uh, or excuse me, to the surf and thought, okay, you know, I'm going, it looks right. 
overnight, you know, sometimes a remarkably subtle southwest wind with the wrong tide can turn the water shockingly filthy overnight. And I had done just that. I was fishing the Galveston beachfront proper off the um, the seawall itself. And I get, and I'm looking, you know, you're just getting that first crack of lightning, like, well, that doesn't look very good. And then you get in the water, and it's that that moment of sorrow when you put your hand down in the water and you can see about three inches. Yeah. And it was calm, but it was sandy. But there was bait everywhere. And it, the water had obviously just turned with the tide. And so I put on a giant super spook, big old orange one, and a big black back gold body, sort of that old, uh, goodness, what is that? That's the 808 pattern. Um, and I mean, crushed them. In, in, and I've done that not a ton of times, mm-hmm. but I bet I can think of half a dozen times where that water had turned bad. So to your point, bait probably trumps everything yeah. because if that bait's there, there are probably some level of sport fish and, and, and in many cases, trout yeah. that are that are. Well, it's not, you know, the thing is, it's not like the trout necessarily have migrated out because the water's murky out there too, you know, it's just sometimes catching them, sometimes catching them can be harder like that. But you mentioned something about early. I have found that some of the most glorious topwater bites that I've ever gotten in my life are either at the jetties about 30 to 45 minutes before sunrise to about 30 minutes after and also in the surf. Have you ever gotten in on that early, early topwater bite in the surf? Oh, I do love that. Like I said, it, the only when it's super early. I mean, you can, you know, I'm sure you've experienced the the complexity of when you go ahead and you just got down there too early because you just couldn't sleep and you're just too fired up. Yeah, and you pile into the surf and you get out a comfortable level and you can hear some bait flopping around, but you can't really see very well. And you just go ahead and make a cast with your, you know, your bo- your bone spook junior. And you get crushed immediately, and you don't have a headlight. And you're like, this is going to be interesting. And uh, I I can't tell you how many times through the years I've done that or with a mirror lure. And so I say, well, I'm just going to walk up to the beach. (laughs) This is really going to end poorly otherwise. Um, So you're exactly right. Is that early, early bite? Um, again, I'm big on saying, you know, never give up on a top water. I've, I've had some really, really good action later in the day too, but the early morning one, um, is truly magical and honestly is often the premier time to be throwing a top water. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that, you know, that, that time of day is key? You know, it's, I guess that everything's so delicate then in terms of, you know, the, the, the predators have so much advantage, you yeah. know, because they're seeing more light than, than we probably give them credit because they can feed under starlight. I mean, I know you've done that where you night wait in a, in a new moon. Yeah. And if the stars are super bright, those fish can be aggressively on top. And, um, cause I think, you know, again, they're looking at, you know, they're in a dim environment and they're looking up to that bait that's on the surface and they have the perfect lighting. It's, you know, I mean, those fish, those bait fish are all backlit by whatever starlight or yep. emerging yep. sunlight coming up. So I think it just orients them, you know, it just puts all the cool kids on the top of the, the water column. And, um, and then a, a thrash and top water is probably highlighted at that point. And, um, and it is, I mean, it's, it's something to behold. It's, it's worth the destination. It's even worth the misfires of trips that don't, 
always come together in terms of the conditions being right. Because when you put one together, it can be the best trip of your year. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a magical thing. So uh, what top water will you be starting off with out there? Yeah, okay. So if it's um, if it's tomorrow and the surf's right and I'm going down and I'm thinking Galveston, but it's applicable in, in most places. I mean, I think there's there's some I think there's a lot of similarities in different sure. ways surf present, at least if you were to bifurcate it into upper and lower. I think there's some differences if you look at them as only the just two spheres. But I think let's just say across the spectrum of the upper coast, um, a bone spook junior is my go-to. It's also kind of my go-to in the bay, um, and then, and then probably right behind that in terms of plugs is a 51M um, CHG mirror lure. So that that old school chartreuse back and belly gold side, and you know, I mean, mirror lure is as medieval a bait as you get. I mean, let's think about it. It's a short piece of plastic with three um, <laughs> trebles stuck on it. It looks terrible, but it is, it, it's a good bait in a lot of places. It is a great bait to serve. Yeah, um, no, no doubt and then, about that. You, know, you were talking about, and you're talking about your silver spoon. I am a big spoon guy in the surf, big yep. spoon guy. Um, I, I'm not big on putting a wire leader with them. Um, I'll, I'll affix a split ring and a black um, swivel on the nose of it. And often I'll take it off if there's just too many mackerel or juvenile yeah. bluefish that I start losing them. I just got to give up on that bait. But um, those are probably my three go-tos. You know, I mean, I'm, I throw jigs some too, but I'll be honest with you, I probably throw them less than more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though they're more productive if you were trying to catch more fish, I tend to be more aesthetically oriented when I'm in the surf. And so I will overstick with the top water for the very reasons you alluded to earlier. Um, same thing with the mirror I mean, that is a jarring bite. A sure. two or three pound trout in the surf, as you're working a mirror lure along, when they grab it, it is that's a game on hit. That is a very, very exciting bite. Yeah, it's awesome. And, uh, you know, in terms of my top water selection, uh, a skitter walk, um, uh, kind of the chrome oh, yeah, color, or um, yep. I also like the white with the red head. And uh, I use a Sabeel Splasher a lot. I've become a huge fan of Sabeel Splasher, which is a chugger. And I find just chug, sit five seconds, chug, sit five seconds. And usually the bite is right between the sit, like two, two and a half seconds. It always seems to be right there. And then a, then a silver spoon, you know. And uh, typically yeah. what I end up doing is if I start catching a bunch of mackerel and I'm not after mackerel, sometimes I will be. If I see mackerel in the surf, I'll just go after mackerel. I don't do the wire leader yep. thing either, and uh, just gonna cut off and put something else on there because uh, focus on trout. And you know, I kind of stick with that. I don't do a lot of plastics. I don't want to catch a bunch of gaff top and other stuff. I'm not looking for because when I'm in the when I'm in the surf, I'm typically after trout, or if there's a redfish run after redfish or the mackerel, and usually it's trout. And you know, I don't know if there's a better place for me to catch beautiful like 18 to 22 inch trout than in the surf. Yeah, and I agree. I'm actually glad there's a. I want to even take a step back on on color choices. You mentioned one that's totally my favorite, which is the redhead white body. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I forgot about that one. It's funny. Um, the woodpecker was what it was always the called. Woodpecker, back the woodpecker. Yeah, that's it. But I have a uh, I, I have a deep affinity for a Spook Junior redhead white body, and particularly in the surf. I like it in the bay too. Um, and I'll tell you too, what's funny with that Spook Junior is, 
it, the the more fish you catch on it, the more crushed that white gets and scratches off. And I have a couple of them that almost are kind of becoming transparent through the body. I don't know if it's just me, but I swear they start working better. Huh. Um, huh. It's it's like it, I don't know if that gives a different little flash than just the pure white. Um, but I love that bait, and and that would. I should put that in my tops, as a matter of fact, because mm-hmm. it's a it's one that I will go to almost immediately, and it's the goofiest looking color pattern. I mean, clearly their eyes uh, refract light a little differently than ours because it looks stupid, but it really works. You mentioned the eyes, you know, a lot here, and that's really is key. Speckled trout are very visual in their attack. And um, I've always found that, that little nuances sometimes make a lot bigger difference on trout than like for a redfish, for example. God, I didn't have a truth. It's funny. Again, you can see I think in stories, but this is funny. Yeah. Um, and apparently many of them are self-effacing because I'm going to give another <laughs> one where I, where I did something that, that worked for a while and then it didn't. So there was a little period in the Bolivar pocket. Um, this is when I was fish guiding and, it was at that time we were using jumping minnows. Um, yep. I think we'd maybe started to use ghosts a little bit. So baits, both of which are out of vogue now, but probably still work great. Um, but it was, you, you would take a chrome one and you would take a red marks a lot, uh-huh. uh, a permanent marks a lot, yep. and color it entirely red. Same thing with the broken back. And I mean, it was, it wasn't just, you know, two to one, it was multiples to one. So, um, I'm taking customers out there every day. We're crushing them. And I basically end up coloring just everything this side of my wife with a red marks a lot. <laughs> I mean, I cover everything because I'm convinced that is just the way it's going to be that summer. And then it stopped being that way. <laughs> it was, it was one of those things that showed me, but in both directions, one that when it started working, little things matter. Sure. And then when it quit working, little things matter. And I have no clue why they got so attuned to that. Um, there was, from my optics, nothing remarkable in the change of the bait pattern, in the change of the tide patterns, and uh-huh. change of anything. And those fish, you know, you'd still catch some with the red, but it was back to sort of normal where you'd go pecking around with all sorts of different baits. But it does speak to the need, and, and I think the surf's a place where it particularly plays out is go ahead and play with color there a little bit more than you might in other places because yeah. those fish do get on certain patterns. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that, that they tend to get, get on a certain pattern for like, you know, a week, you know, uh, yeah. two weeks sometimes, and I got to change up a little bit, you know. It may be throwing a yeah. three-inch instead of a four-inch or a four-inch instead of a three-inch, you know, uh, downsizing even a little bit or of the different colors. And I've always been fascinated. I remember I'm a pretty sarcastic person, unfortunately. That's something I'm working on. But, um, you know, I have – I remember <laughs> early on in my career, you know, I'd be interviewing some bass pro or something. I was like 19 years old, and he'd be like, you know, you're catching them on a – it'd be a topwater, and it'd be like it has a black back and a white bottom, and I'm like – the fish can't see the back, you know, why are they jumping out of the water for a look is my you know, sarcastic thought. But, you know, I, I know that there's that contrast line and I actually went and spent some time underwater in a pool with scuba gear looking at and photographing. We did an article for this in Texas fishing game in like 2000 and maybe nine, um, you know, what it looked like. And just that little contrast line of different colors, uh, or may go to green to orange or whatever it is can make a big difference. Uh, have you ever uh, really gotten to a particular plug, for example, for trout on the surf where you had a certain colored back that was the magic thing? 
You know, I, I, that's, a, that's interesting because I, and I do agree with you. I do think the back does matter. Yep. Um, just because I've seen people throw a bait. I mean, you, and again, this was one of the things I got to see graphically when you're fish guiding, um, guys get this great, um, advantage in the arena that they're fishing in. They're seeing three and four people fishing around them every day, all the time. Yeah. And you get to see sometimes little things really do matter because yeah. you may all be throwing very similar baits, but this one bait really matters. And sometimes it's the act, sometimes it's the bait itself. Sometimes it's literally some little nuance of it, you know, mm-hmm. that it can, it can have some little color line on it for some reason, keys those fish off. That's probably what I've noticed more. I don't know that I've been able to pick off that, one, you know, the shade here or there mattered, yeah. but I have undoubtedly seen where color matters. It's funny. I wrote a uh, chapter in that book yes. about color matters until it does. Oh, that's my favorite chapter love, in your book, by the way. I love that thing. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love, because, because it doesn't matter plenty of times, but there's also plenty it does. And when it does, it's maddening. I mean, and anyone who's been fishing for you don't really have to fish very long to have stumbled up into that where someone's got a certain color that matters. Yep. And, um, and I think when you mentioned the bass fisherman, that's always a smart thing. And I know we've talked about this in mm-hmm. previous conversations, yep. but you know, the bass guys are always ahead of us. Uh, saltwater anglers. Yep. And, um, I mean, they were doing everything before us and, and, and so many of the baits we use and even the techniques we use, we get from them. And it's kind of probably a lesson because you think about how color geeky those those guys and gals are. Um, it really speaks to the fact that color does matter a lot of times. And again, the surf is sort of the crucible where I think it sometimes matters more because you often are fishing very clear water. Yeah. You know, you often are fishing water that's moving rapidly, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's got a lot of glistening, a lot of a lot a lot going on in it. And so, if there's a place where color matters the most it's probably there mm-hmm. you know something i want to try in the surf at some point is um because i know a few guys in florida that do this is they're taking these like soft plastic crab imitations and catching some pretty big trout on them believe it or not in the surf uh i do really? know that i've actually seen trout hit crabs before small crabs in the surf and things like that yeah and it makes me think about around some of these piers and stuff like that where there's a lot of little small crabs and things like that you know so listeners out there if you've ever um caught them on any kind of a crab imitation in the surf i would love to hear about that because it's something i'm just intrigued with lately and so you can email me at chester at chestermore.com i love hearing your feedback on that kind of stuff because i learn a lot that's the one thing you and i pat speaking in front of people i know you learn a lot from other anglers as well Oh yeah! Oh man, it's unbelievable. I, I I tell people that that one of the best ways to become a better angler is just listening. Because yep. I mean, people and, and, and fishermen by their nature cannot help but tell you their secrets, <laughs> and they exactly. want to. They want to tell you, and if you you know, the key becomes sorting through what's garbage and blather or not, but particularly. Good anglers, and generally, you know, you're going to surround yourself, hopefully, with with good anglers, and what they can do to wake you up to certain techniques, and honestly, certain baits, um, you know, that that we've had, you know, that the technology in lures has advanced a lot, 
and um, and the boom in fishing tackle that's happened uh, recently, and I say recently in the last probably decade, in particularly in saltwater um, inshore fishing, has created a whole bunch of new baits. Yeah, and um, and 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 often there's no better guide to that than hearing somebody else tell you about it, and then when they tell you about it, and, you know, it, just this conversation. Mm-hmm. You've reminded me to double make sure I got a woodpecker in my in my surf box. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, it's funny. There was a little period I got crazy into chuggers mm-hmm. um, just for fun. Uh, Storm Lures had come out with a chugger. Yeah. And, uh, and and I was playing with a bunch of baits back then that were some of the sort of neo-peacock bass baits, wood choppers and stuff like that. And um, and I remember the, of those sort of, you know, that little Island of Misfit Toys lures that I was playing with, the chugger was the one that was so wildly effective. And yeah. um, I need to do that more. I mean, that's a good bait. It's a very good idea. Well, the the sort of the, the research lab that I have for my fishing is uh, four different ponds at two different properties that are big ponds, like small lakes that I have access to. A couple of them have really clear water. A couple of them have dingy water. And uh, I always think a largemouth bass is a pretty good representation of pretty much your average sport fish. You know, we're talking, um, you know, whether it's a trout or a snook or a redfish, there's characteristics in largemouth bass that kind of go with all of those fish, you know. And and I get to fish them three or four times a week just playing around. It might be 30 minutes, but I'd like to go there, you know, blow some steam off, go fish a little bit because one of them is a mile from my house. And there's another one I fish. It's about seven or eight miles. And I'll go there maybe once a month and fish. And at that one, that's where I noticed that, you know, that fish, that's the really pressured spot. And that that chugger, I would chug it and let it sit about five seconds. And sometimes I would see a bass come up behind it. And I started training myself and disciplining myself to just chug and let sit for five, maybe seven seconds. And sometimes that's when the hit would happen. And I just translated that to trout fishing. And in times when I, the bites, maybe they're missing the top water, the chugger, you know, the walker, missing that skitter walk or, you know, coming, kind of circling it and not taking it. That's when I'll typically throw my chugger, slower approach, let it sit. And then they do what they do. Yeah, that's great. I tell you too, you're you're giving good advice on any top water too. That um, you know, I talked about that the the big, the full sized um, super spook, um, and the spook junior for that matter too, or any top any walking bait is stopping them. Um, that matters anywhere you fish. Yeah. The surf matters a ton. I mean, it matters a ton. And 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 the reason I think in the surf it matters even more so than in the bay is. I think when that bait's sitting still, if there's a little bit of motion, which in the surf, even, even on calm days, there tends to be some. There's a little more tidal flow that'll pull one into the bait. There's you know a little bit of wave action that'll make that rattle go in a very sort of rolling, natural way. Yeah. Um, I catch more fish coming off the stop in the surf than yeah. probably any other way. You can walk it all day long and probably catch plenty of fish, but those stops are critical. Yeah, man, that's a great piece of advice there. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the actual trout in the surf themselves. You know, there's always been that debate about trout trading from bay to surf. There's some research showing there is a little bit of that. But basically, a lot of these longer, you know, places that are further away from passes and things like that sort of have their own um, their own populations of trout that stay basically in that in that area. And you'll hear anglers talking about you know that the trout are coming in. Now, I had an experience at a rig we call the Lena 
Leaning Tower of Pisa. And I'm not even sure if it's still there after the last two hurricanes, but it's right off uh, Sea Rim area, about a mile and a half to two miles offshore. It's an old rig platform that's leaning. And when it's sandy green, we usually catch trout there. But I sat there once and watched the incoming tide bring the sandy green water. And in five minutes of the sandy green water, we had trout at the same spot been waiting for the tide to come in for an hour. Now, what do you think happened there? My thoughts are that the for some reason the water clarity turned. I don't think the fish were following the clear water. Do you think they followed the clear water, or do you think that they're just there and that triggers a bite? You know, that's interesting. I I I would suspect they were there and that triggered the bite. Yeah, that's um, what I'm at. Yeah, because I would bet what it did was. Number one, it was a, a new set of motion in the water. I mean, it was the tide itself moving. Sure. The water clarity might have given them an advantage. Um, also, too, that, that tide change might have brought a new flow of bait fish yeah. or bait fish from a different region. Yep. And they obviously had a predatory advantage at that point because they were probably positioned around the legs of the, of the jacket of the platform itself. Um, so I think probably all those added up. Um, but it is funny that you allude to the you know, the fish coming in, um, you know, the trout are coming in. And I, I'm still so mixed on surf versus bay. I Me mean, too. I think you got You know, I mean, there's definitely some interchange. I mean, from years ago, tagging for fish trackers, I mean, I had enough returns where I'd tag a fish at Shell Island, West Galveston Bay, which is about you know, darn near the middle of the bay, that would then get returned um, you know, at Jamaica Beach on the beach side. And so yeah. it clearly, you know, followed the shrimp out of the bay, I would assume, in spring followed the brown shrimp out, and then maybe spent some of its summer out in the surf. Yep. Um, but then again, there's also those ones that you know, I mean, again, it's those ones, I think the earliest I caught trout in the surf that I could remember, and this, again, kind of is more in the days when I really kept an eye on it, like it was, which was guiding, I remember one time catching them on April Fool's Day. Wow. And that's early. Yeah, very early. Um, and, yeah, and, and and I hadn't figured it out. I mean, it was somebody had given me the, the lead that, hey, there's some fish there. And we went to the ball over surf, and sure enough, we whacked them. And you cannot tell me those fish weren't living out there. I yeah. mean, there's just they, they just wouldn't have left the bay at that time of year and come out there, at least in my opinion, I could be totally wrong. And on the same way, um, you know, like the short rigs, for example, and just to take a small diversion there, mm -hmm. you know, they're not very far out and there are trout around there. And in my opinion, that part of the Gulf probably has a state record trout swimming out there somewhere. No one mess because of lack of pressure. So those are basically kind of the way I see it. Those kind of the same populations of fish that trade in and out. But uh, I just think that uh, some anglers can get a little, uh, they may miss opportunities by thinking they're waiting on something to bring the trout to the surf when they're already there. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that is a that might be the most relevant point to make about the surf in yep. that, again, those sandy surf days, um, I mean, my goodness, uh, it's funny. I can think of some times, family times down there. I remember one where I had happened to keep a rod in the back of my truck. I'm down there flopping around the surf. I mean, I literally have on board shorts and a, and a boogie board. I mean, this is the most unfishing looking version of me you can get. Gotcha. And, um, and they were slicking so heavy out beyond the break yep. that I went back and I had, I had a rod in there just cause just at least 
Because you're um, Pat Murray, and that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I had to throw one there. And it was interesting because I went out there, and it was a mix of ladyfish and trout and gaff top. Yeah. And, um, and it was wide open, and it was a rough mess out there. And and I think what they were doing at that time, if I remember correctly, is there was a lot of shrimp in the surf. They were yeah. eating shrimp and shad and slicking, and you know I would have never known they were there. But I think those fish are there probably a lot. Yeah. And it would not surprise me that there aren't some people who prowl um, the surf and particularly those rock groins in in Galveston and fish with live mullet and live croaker in dirty water and catch ginormous trout and don't tell anybody about it. It would not surprise me at all if someone had figured a pattern like that out. Well, I'll tell you something I haven't done in years, and I'm going to do it this year because I'm crazy enough to just fish in the surf with a fly rod this year for trout. Uh, <laughs> that's, I love it. I that's love nuts, it. but I'm going to do it. But uh, Constance Beach, Johnson Bayou Beach, parts of Holly Beach, just across the Texas border here in Louisiana, have rock jetties all along the beach for erosion control. And, you know, there will even be guides from like Hackberry that will come out of the jetties and go fish the backside of those rocks for trout. And uh, and I'm going to focus on some of those keys. And that's kind of where I want to wrap up our conversation is, you know, you have most of the time you're fishing to surf, you're fishing, a, you know, you're fishing the cuts, you know, the guts, you're fishing the, uh, sometimes a bowl or something like that. But what about those spots where you have a little rock jetty or a, a rock outcropping or an old dock or something like that? You got any special tricks that you use for those areas? Well, I'll tell you, they, uh, they matter a lot. Um, mm. because you're right. A lot of times you're fishing an area. One of my favorite spots on the East beach, um, is, I don't know why it does it in this particular area, but the bars will widen and thin. Yeah. And, um, that little nuance is all you need, uh, to have fish. So flash forward to what you just proposed, which is, um, an erosion protection of some sort, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe some old rubble from, uh, up here or something, the storm left. Mm-hmm. The thing I think that's key there is to treat it the same way you would if you were fishing a jetty in that there's, you know, on a jetty, there's lots of rocks, but for some reason, the dead man rock always has fish or the, yep. you know, the cross rock always has fish. You know, there's always some symbol. Yep. And so it's figuring out where the washouts are, figuring out how the tide goes around it. Yep. And sometimes it's just observational. You know, where are the eddies getting created? Where's, where's it creating a little bit of dirty water that might be an advantage? Um, how does the bait work around it and where does the bait seem to be in re- in respect to it and then you can start to figure it out and um because those things do matter because i think also those types of areas are the ones that are more likely to hold um sort of domestic fish you know fish that tend to spend a lot of time in that area mm. um and those are ones you could probably work over on a pattern, maybe better than the ones that would be more transient on the open bars. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you know, sort of semi-pelagic trout that are out there roaming the surf. We used to, uh-huh. we used to sit there and follow them down the beach. Schools of them, they'd pop up. Yeah. You go out and fish, they leave. They're a mile away. You got glass them. You drive down the beach and catch them again. But some of those it, fish are maybe locked, yeah, locked into those spots. And you mentioned the comparison to the jetties. You know, like a jetty, you have maybe, let's say, 15 feet across the top, but it's probably 50 to 60 feet across the bottom of rocks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking, not, don't just look at the surface. If you can actually, if it's clear enough to see down at the bottom of those areas, you know, uh, don't just think if you got one rock sticking up that it's that width at the top. You may have some areas around the bottom you can work. 
and looking for those uh, spot, on, I call it the spot on the spot. You mentioned like a cross rock or whatever, the washout um, key on that. And if you find one little nuance of that particular piece of structure that you get a bite on, do that again. You may have a pattern forming. Yeah, no, you're so right. And and the other thing the surf lends itself to is is display structure within that little that what you found because um, because of the strength and sort of gravity of the of of the surf, you may have a rock that's six, eight, ten feet away from the rest of the structure that got moved in a storm. Who yeah. knows what? Um, you know, those are the neat ones to find where. All of a sudden, there's you know two or three rocks scattered out through a given area that are apart from that that might be the key spot, particularly where the bigger fish are. Yep. So that, again, it's uh, it's your spot within a spot. I think that is a very important point to make. Awesome stuff. Well, obviously, Pat, we've had a uh, a really wild ride of a year ecologically on the Texas coast, sure. and we've had the freeze situation. CCA, the Star Turnham has made the decision of catch and release only this year. Just having you know, you're having your offshore division with the red snapper being back, but of course, having uh, enc- enhanced numbers of um, tagged redfish and things like that. I've created a thing I call the 21 Trout Pledge. I'm releasing all of my trout I catch this year voluntarily. And for the next two years, I'm going to be releasing everything 21 inches or better uh, to keep with the theme and remind us of what happened this year. But just to kind of wrap things up, Pat, because I know your heart obviously is conservation. That's that's your that's your life. There is promoting that conservation of marine resources. How important is it for us to reflect on what happened this year and to move forward with maybe even a, a better conservation ethic? Oh, well, what a great way to end it. Um, you're 100% right. Um, and I, I appreciate you framing up the star tournament. We did, you know, this year we're doing all catch and release, um, eliminated most of our divisions of an offshore and tagged redfish. And the tagged redfish, even when you catch a tagged redfish this year, you got to clip the tag off. You have to let the fish go. Wow. Um, it'll be a slot size fish, most likely, but it just, you got to let it go anyway. And, uh, and so, and I too am not going to keep a speckled trout this year. Um, wow. And again, personal choice, personal yeah, choice. Exactly. Um, but uh, but I do think um, I wrote something in the last Tide magazine that um, that uh, a great line that Cullen Plog, James Plog's dad said is if you're going to be a fly, be a big green one. And he was his point was if you're going to do something, go all in. And yeah. I think that may be what we see in conservation because there's been a number of people. Um, like you and me and, and many, many others who were already way into it um, yeah. and, and fishing guides who were already had an amazing conservation ethic who've decided to go all catch and release this year, or at least on trout catch and release. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's going to set the pace for a long time of people understanding the ephemeral nature of our resources and that they really can be, in this case, damaged, not taken away, but they can be taken away by, by you know, just a freeze um, by all sorts of things, by regulation, by so many things that can impact the health of the resources and access to them. And I think we'll have an even greater level of, of, of respect of them. And hopefully with angling growing rapidly like it is right now, there's a whole new wave of fishermen coming in. They're sort of getting born into that new ethic. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty upbeat about conservation for the future. Yeah, me too. Very excited about it. And uh, if someone wants to buy your book, where do they go? Uh, probably the easiest is Amazon. Yep. Just go to good old Amazon and look for It's More Than Fishing. And um, and it's like I said, it's an easy read. Um, Chester was kind enough to, to review it for me. 
and um, and it's got a bunch of photography that um, that I've fiddled with through the years, and um, I think uh, hopefully you get something out of it and, and enjoy it. Well, thanks for doing the podcast. I love it. I appreciate Chester. Always happy to do this. It's been said that bonefish provide us practice, tarpon provide us excitement, and permit provide us humility. But what can we provide them in return for so enriching our lives? Our support for the science behind the fight. Our support for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please join us today at BTT.org. The species' well-being depends on You've been listening to Higher Calling Gulf Coast with award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Email him at chester at chestermore.com. Check out his wildlife writings at highercalling.net and find him at the Chester Moore on Instagram.